Well, good morning, NBC. So glad to be up here with you all. It's been a while. I'm so excited to be going over uh, Ephesians 6, verse 14 through 24 with you this morning. Uh, this is the part covering the armor of God. A lot of content here. It's at least five sermons worth of material. I'm going to try to condense into one. Uh, it's a very rich metaphor. Looking forward to just jumping into it with you all. So let's go ahead. If you are able to, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. We will be turning to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 through 24. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I might declare boldly as I ought to speak. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your heart. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy and gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, fill this room with your presence. Open our ears to what you would have to say to us this morning. Let our hearts be receptive. Let our minds be receptive that it might be molded and shaped and changed by you to conform ever more closely to your son. And God, let your words speak through my mouth. I can do all the preparation in the world, but God, all of it will fall short without you and without your work, and without your spirit working in and through this place. So we ask for that spirit to be present. And we ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. So we've spent about four months in the book of Ephesians. We started back in April, and now we're here. And if you've been reading closely, you'll notice that there are these things that are often referenced by Paul, uh, these spiritual beings that exist, such as powers and principalities and rulers of this dark world. And if you're kind of like me, and you've kind of subscribed to this Western post-Enlightenment worldview, that kind of stuff kind of makes you uncomfortable a little bit. It just doesn't sound like it fits quite the worldview that we have going on. And, and Paul says, well, no, I disagree. And who am I to disagree with Paul, right? Paul, Paul says there's something more going on here. There, there are these spiritual realities that do exist, and they often counter the people of God. They often try to deceive, and they often try to corrupt and take what God has made good and twist it. 
David put it really well last week if you uh, listen to the sermon of this idea that really the struggle is not good people versus bad people. But there are these beings, these rulers, these authorities, the demonic, these anti-creation, anti-kingdom forces that are against the people of God. And if you look all over the New Testament, what you'll realize is often these powers and principalities, they're not, they're not always like showing up like, ha, I'm jumping out of the forest and getting you. But, it, but it's this idea of like, they can be conniving, they're very crafty. They'll show up in places where you least expect and they will often communicate in ways that are very convincing and compelling as well. They will show up sometimes in our desires that we feel to be good and true. Sometimes these powers and principalities will show up in the things that we consider to be just plain old common sense. And they look for footholds in our family dynamics. And they look for footholds in our community dynamics and in our social institutions. And yeah, they can even show up within the dynamics of a church as well. So you can see how Paul is a little bit concerned about these powers, maybe a little bit more than a little bit. He says, hey, we got to be aware of these things, but also notice in the book of Ephesians that Paul doesn't spend that much time thinking about the powers. He'll mention them, but greater time is spent on the good news. The good news is that there's a greater power at work, that all these powers and principalities, they can gang up and create a super team. But there's a greater power at work. There is a Holy Spirit at work. And this Holy Spirit has exemplified his power in the resurrection of Jesus. And this Holy Spirit afterwards didn't go on retirement, but has come down and has filled up the people of God. And has created a regeneration in the life of the people of God. And now empowers us and now equips us with what Paul says is the very armor of God. This armor of God is given to us to counter the powers, to counter the principalities. And so it's probably a good thing that we spend some time to think about what this armor is. How do we put it on? What does it look like to put it on and to walk in it? So as we think about this armor of God that Paul is drawing up this metaphor, it's likely that Paul is thinking of Roman armor here. And, and the reason why I think this is a good way to think about it is because uh, Paul, when he was living at his time in the first century, the dominant empire at the time was the Roman Empire. Uh, geographically speaking, they just covered a vast uh, span of land. They started all the way in Spain, and you move over all the way to uh, Asia Minor, where modern-day Turkey is, and that's where Ephesus is at. Then you go all the way south down the Levant, all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula, where the Transformers had their final battle in the Revenge of the Fallen, if you've seen that movie. And then you go all the way across... Uh, to northern Egypt and cross over to northern Algeria, northern Morocco, and then all the way back to Spain. That's a huge chunk of land. So everyone was familiar with the Roman Empire. Everyone was familiar with their soldiers, and especially in Ephesus. Ephesus was a really important city. Uh, Ephesus was where the great temple of Artemis was, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, Ephesus was the place they hosted the gladiator games. So let, everyone knew what Paul was talking about when he said armor. And, and so what's interesting here then is that Paul is taking something incredibly familiar, a symbol of dominance, a symbol of conquering, a symbol of a false sense of peace achieved by violence, 
and he's going to turn it upside down on its head to talk about a different kind of symbol, a different kind of equipment that the people of God need to take on to truly conquer, to truly achieve peace, and to truly have unity. And so now he turns to this armor, and the first piece that he will look at is this thing called the belt of truth. Now, belts back then kind of function like how belts function now, except, you know, as you can see, I'm wearing pants. Uh, they didn't really wear pants back in the day. Soldiers would have these long draping tunics uh, and that would kind of fit loosely. And I don't know if you can imagine this, David Miles, but uh, if, you, if you had something draping all the way down to your knees, it'd probably be a little difficult to fight me on a hand-to-hand combat, right? Like tr- just trying to move, trying to maneuver. And so what they would do before they get into this engagement is that they would take the tunic and they would wrap it up to about old school NBA shorts length, and then they would tuck that into the belt, right? So now you're unimpeded, right? Now there's no hindrance at the knees. You can move about. You can get ready for combat. So the idea here is that the belt is more than just about putting your supplies in place, but the belt is about making sure you can move. I think what Paul's getting at here is also that with truth, without truth, it's really hard to walk around in life unhindered. So, so what is the truth that Paul is speaking of? Uh, if we look back to Ephesians 1, Paul uh, talks about the message of truth. Uh, and Ephesians 1, if we can sum it up all into maybe one sentence, uh, the, the basic premise of it is this, is that from the very beginning of time, God was mindful of us. And from the very beginning of time, God chose us and adopted us in Jesus Christ. That is the message of truth, according to Paul. Uh, In theology, uh, there's this term uh, that's often used in seminary called aseity. It's A-S-E-I-T-Y. And basically, the idea of aseity is this, uh, God doesn't need you, which sounds harsh. So let me try to redefine it a little bit. What what, what Asayati is saying is that God is completely God and doesn't lack anything from the very beginning of time. God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is sufficiently God. There is sufficient love. There is sufficient joy. There is sufficient everything. And the mystery of theology and the mystery that Paul is trying to describe to us in all of his epistles is that somehow, some way, this God is so overflowing with love, so overflowing with life, and so overflowing with generosity that God creates and shares that love and shares that generosity and shares that life as an overflow of what's happening. And that's a little hard for me to grasp as well. I'm like trying to think, you know, what, what does that look like? What, what's a good analogy for that? Uh, and as I thought about this, I kind of thought about parenting as, as a loose analogy to maybe think about this. Uh, I was Googling the other day uh, about how much it costs on average for parents uh, from the moment a child is born until they're 18 years old. And the total was about $200,000. Is that, is that close? No? Okay. (laughs) Maybe it's a lot more than that. Uh, Well, regardless of if it's 200, 400, a million, uh, I I can't lie. The first thought I had to myself was, why? (laughs) Why? Like, why would you you do that? Like, yesterday, Joe and I were able to be like, hey, let's just go get pizza because we can. We have that freedom. We have that liberation. We can just go and do, 
right? We don't have to think about, mm, do we have babysitting, right? And so I was thinking to myself, like, what is at the heart of this desire to bring in someone into your household, whether it's by birth or by adoption? And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, parents, fundamentally what's going on here is I don't think you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'm lacking, that's why I need this. Or I'm trying to complete myself, though. that's why I'm going to bring you into the world. I think what's going on there instead is there's this deep, deep desire to share of your abundance. There is so much life and generosity, and there's so much joy that, that, that you as a family, you're just thinking to yourself, man, I got to have this as an overflow and share it with someone else and bring them into this. And, and what Paul's saying here is that we do that as incomplete and as imperfect people to the best of our abilities, but God is complete, and God is perfect, and God is the Father who says to us as well, you know what, I'm going to bring you in. It's not because I have lack, but because I want to, because I'm so overflowing with it. And so before you were anything, before you were anyone, God says to us, you were known. And you were chosen and you were predestined in Christ and you were adopted. And you are beloved. And that's the truth Paul is trying to tell us here that needs to be secured and fastened around us. We need to be secure in this identity. We need to be secured in this reality that God is the generous beloved and we are the beloved. And if we are secure in that truth, then it's very difficult not to be hindered, right? If we are secure in that truth and we walk, then there's nothing impeding us. So we think about the belt of truth, and then the next thing Paul uh, directs to our attention is this thing called the uh, breastplate of righteousness. So the breastplate of righteousness, when we hear that word righteousness, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I get a little nervous about the word righteousness because oftentimes in culture we pair that with self. Like, for example, Hannah, you're self-righteous. Uh, and and, and then that, that's not negative. That's always negative. That's never a compliment, right, Hannah? Uh, so, <laughs> sorry, Hannah. Uh, Right? It's never a compliment. It's always this negative thing. And I think what Paul is getting at here is this Greek word for righteousness, which is uh, dikaiosune. And dikaiosune, basically a better understanding of this word would be to be properly or rightly ordered. Uh, to be properly or rightly ordered in your relationships or to be properly or rightly ordered in society. And and Paul is doing here in this part of the letter what Paul so often does, which is he's hyperlinking. Uh, it's this idea, you know, when you're on the computer and you're reading articles and you click a blue letter and it takes you to another web page, right? Paul, Paul often does that where he'll put like these key words and you click it and it's supposed to take you back somewhere else in scripture. So Paul here is taking us back to Isaiah chapter 59. And in Isaiah chapter 59, uh, specifically in verse 14, what we find is we find the prophet Isaiah just lamenting the fact that there is no dikaiosune to be found. Uh, Isaiah is looking all around and he's just like, everything is out of order. Everything is not right. The powerless are being stomped on and the courts are corrupt and no one cares about justice and no one cares about the alien, orphan and widow. And Isaiah just goes on and on. And then in verse 16, it says that God... It's also looking down with Isaiah as well. And God is also saying, yeah, Isaiah, you're right. There is no dikaiosune. There is no right order. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to intervene because no one else is intervening. And I'm going to go into my heavenly armory and I'm going to pull out the breastplate of the kaiosune. I'm going to pull out my breastplate of righteousness, put it on to create the kaiosune where there is a lack of it to put to right what is wrong. And I think what Paul's doing here is he's, he's drawing upon that image and he's saying to the Christian, hey, we need to be imitators of God as well in this. We need to reflect God's image in our own being as well. What God puts closest to his heart, we need to put closest to our heart. We need to be mindful of the powerless. We need to be mindful of the justice that is lacking, of the dikaiosune that is lacking in our midst. Because when we do that, we live closer into who God is and we imitate closer what God does. But I think it also protects our heart as well. If you've seen the whole span of Christian history, what you'll realize is that often when we don't put close to our heart the very things of God, we tend to misuse power. We tend to misuse armor. We tend to misuse authority. And what God is saying is, no, 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 put the kaiosune close to your heart, not only because that will help you to imitate me, but because also that will protect you from self-interest. That will protect you from neglect. So Paul says, okay, we have your belt of truth, and we have the breastplate of the kaiosune, the breastplate of righteousness. The next place he turns our attention to is to the feet. Uh, shoes back then kind of functioned like ancient cleats. Uh, they had these little studs on the bottom that helped you to grip the ground so you can juke and spin and basically dominate the field like Emilio. Uh, and the idea here is, right, it's all about dominance. It's all about opposing. It's all about being able to overtake the enemy. But here again, Paul subverts that image. Paul, Paul turns it on his head, right? Because these shoes are not just about dominance. The shoes of God are for the readiness of the gospel of peace. Here, there's another hyperlink that Paul is taking us to. He's taking us back to Ephesians 2, where he talks about what this peace looks like. And what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is that Jesus, by his death on the cross, created a certain kind of peace, a twofold peace. There's, there's two parts to this. The first part I think we think of often and, and we buy very well, and, all, and rightfully so. And the first part is God has created peace through Jesus between us and the Father, right? So it's this idea that Jesus, by his death on the cross, has created this right relationship between God the Father and between us. And so there is a dikaiosune, there is a rightly ordered relationship suddenly, and there is peace there. But Paul also says there's a second part to what's going on with Jesus' death on the cross. The second part is that not only is that creating a dikaiosune and peace between us and God the Father, but that's also creating a dikaiosune and a peace between us and our enemies, between us and every neighbor that we encounter. Jesus becomes our peace there, so much so that every hostility and every bitterness and every anger and every offense that we have stacked up into a wall as bricks... Jesus, by his death and by his blood, tears that down. And Jesus gathers in the dems and the us's and puts us together as one household and as one family and becomes our peace. 
And I think what Paul realizes is that um, we're, we may be ready to say we have peace with God, but maybe not always ready to say we have peace with one another. We're ready to say we belong to the household of God, but are we ready to share that we are in the same household together as well? And Paul is very serious about this. And just in case the Ephesians thought that Paul wasn't serious about this, he turns to the very next piece of armor, which is my least favorite piece of armor because I find it the most compelling um, and, and also the most convicting. And this would be the shield of faith. Uh, when we think of Roman shields, well, at least when I think of Roman shields, I think of like Captain America, right? The circular shield that you can just ram people with and throw it and it bounces back to you. Uh, that sort of weapon, right? And the image there is pretty incorrect. Uh, and and what, what the idea is more of a longer rectangular piece of item. In fact, uh, I think I want to kind of illustrate this for you. So, Hannah, thank you, Hannah. Could you bring up a... Those things for me? Yeah, both would be wonderful. Thank you. By the way, Hannah made these. Aren't they just great? <laughs> and then, Sarah, I need you up here. All right. Here you go. Here's your shield. Here's your shield. So the idea here, right, is this idea of like, oh, I'm going to hold my shield. Sarah's going to hold her shield. But we're on the same team, so we're fighting, right? So we're thinking, you block, you attack, you block, you attack. Um, But it's not like P90X here. What's actually going on is that Paul mentions that there are arrows of fire, right? Fire arrows coming your way. And fire arrows were, it's not just a metaphor. They were real things that you would face on the battlefield, and so the, the, the tactic to fight off fire arrows wasn't just block, right? Because it could come anywhere, right? So there was a Roman defensive strategy known as the tortoise. And how the tortoise would work is this. You would be in one unit. The person in front, they would hold up their shield like Sarah, as so. But imagine this shield is going all the way down. And then the second person will come right behind Sarah and do this. And you see, if we went row after row, after row of the outside blocking out and the inside blocking up, that leaves no area for the arrows to come in, doesn't it? Now, why is this part challenging, Sarah? Why, why is this a challenging message? Because we have to work together. We got to work together, right? And if you <laughs> remember, Paul says what? He says in Ephesians 5 and in Ephesians 6 that we have been brought into one household Jews and Gentiles, we've been brought into one household. Husbands and wives, you've been brought into one household. Children and parents, one household. Masters and slaves, one household. And you are in one unit together. And could you imagine then, I don't know about you, but if I was in that unit, if I'm placing myself in the metaphor, and I have to do this for Sarah, you know what? What, what, if, what if Sarah was someone I wasn't too happy with? What if Sarah was just like someone like... <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I just don't like working with you. I just don't know about you. I really don't trust if you're going to stand there if the arrows are coming. So I'm just going to, I'm going to put my shield down. Right? Sorry, you can go ahead and sit down. Thank you. you Yeah, thank you. Right? It's this idea of like, we can start to think to ourselves, hmm, is that person really going to be there? Hmm, is that person really going to be behind? Right? And then uh, there may be fire arrows coming our way, sure. But I don't know about you, but sometimes I just feel like, man, just let Sarah burn. Because, because sometimes 
I want to watch Sarah burn even if I have to burn with her. That would feel satisfying to me. But the reality is, maybe sometimes that's how we feel in our marriages, don't we? Maybe sometimes that's how we feel in our family relationships, don't we? Older kids, younger kids, that's sometimes how we feel about our parents, right? Um, Employees, I better be careful because Pete's watching this, but employees, (laughs) maybe sometimes we feel that way about our employers, employers we feel that way about employees, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, whether it's someone we're worshiping right next to. It can be really easy to look at that person and say, I know God brought us into one unit, but I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think we can work together. I don't think I can hold this up for you. I don't think you're going to hold it up for me. And if everyone's thinking like that, the unit falls apart and we all burn. So I think what Paul is saying here is like, look, it has to be a shield of faith that protects you. And it's not my faith and it's not Sarah's faith. And it surely isn't David's faith, but it's the faithfulness of Jesus. It's a different kind of faith. Our faith is all based on what have you done for me lately? How have you been kind to me? How have you been good to me? Are things well between us? Have you done your end? That's our sort of faithfulness. But Jesus' faithfulness is a different kind of faithfulness that doesn't ask those sorts of questions because if he did, I couldn't answer them. I couldn't answer them in the positive. I'd be like, Jesus, of course I haven't done anything lately. Of course I've been faithless. And yet you're still faithful. The challenge that Paul is drawing to the Ephesians here is this. When you're holding up that shield of faith, it's not based on what they have done lately. It's not based on what you have done lately. But it's based on what Christ has done from the beginning of time up till now and will continue to do. And that's the sort of faithfulness that you need to have and that you need to remember as you lift up that shield. And as you lift up the shield for one another and as you put it up and as you put it outside, and that's the way to counter the enemy together. There needs to be a unity and a cooperation in this together as the people of God, as one household. But Paul also realizes if the enemy can't get you from the outside well, then the, certainly the enemy will come from the inside as well, right? Like if, if I can't get you with these fire arrows, then I'm going to get you in your mind. I'm going to bring up those past things that Sarah did to you. I'm going to bring up those deep-seated resentments. I'm going, to, I'm going to remind you of that one time that one thing happened. I'm going to remind you of that one story that was posted two weeks ago. And if all of this fails, I'm going to expose you to all that is wrong with the world and exhaust you of hope. And this is where Paul says, okay, then what you need to do next is put on the helmet of salvation because the helmet of salvation prevents the powers and the principalities from taking residency in your thoughts and in your mind. It prevents them from camping out there, but instead, it allows you to be consumed. It allows your imaginations to be shaped by the victory and the salvation story of what Jesus has done. It allows you to take every event and every situation and filter it through that salvation story. Now, what might this look like? I actually have a pretty good example for you. Uh, Michelle Freeler. She's not here right now. Uh, she's the newest uh, member to our team. She's our uh, assistant youth director. 
And she is not here currently because she's out with our middle schoolers. And she is helping put together with them uh, welcome packages for Afghan families coming into Washington State. Uh, and they're doing it for about six families. And together, in partnership with the deacons and with missions, uh, we've been able to raise about $2,500 to $3,000 to do that work. Now, without Michelle, none of that happens. Without Michelle, none of that happens. Because, let me just tell you, honestly, last Friday, I was just sitting at the couch doom scrolling, you know, the habit of looking at one negative story after the next. And I was all focused on, mm, this isn't good, this is bad, this is an impossible situation, who should we blame, who do we get angry at? And then Michelle gives me a call in the middle of all that, and she knows better, it's Saturday, she shouldn't be doing that, but she gives me a call, and she's telling me, hey, what about this idea, what if we tried this instead, what if we worked with World Relief and tried this thing? And I'm just like... Okay, maybe, maybe it might work. So I call Sarah, and then Sarah calls some other people, and I call Danica, and here we are today doing what we're doing, right? And why does that happen, though? Why does that happen? Because while my mind was unguarded, while I was focusing on the impossibility of the situation and what was bad, Michelle's mind was guarded. Michelle's mind, yeah, her, her helmet was on, but that didn't blind her from what was going on. Notice, by the way, her eyes were still open and seeing what was going on in the world, but her mind was rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has already done and what Jesus can do in this situation. Her mind was filtered by the salvation story. And so when she saw tragedy, when she saw defeat, she was thinking of ways to be victorious in that situation. She was leading with grace and hope when I was just scared and angry. And what Paul's saying is we got to do the same. We got to remember our salvation story. We got to remember where the victory is at. We got to filter these things through our mind in such a way. Because when we do, we are able to lead with grace. We're able to lead with hope. And like Michelle, when you do that, you can invite other foolish people like me along to do the same. Right? <laughs> And that's how we start to work together as a church. So the last thing, right? We have the shields up. We have the helmet on. Paul then directs our attention to what? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I don't need to do much uh, ancient background here for swords. I think swords in every culture and every age do the same thing. They're that pokey thing that you stab people with, right? <laughs> And they destroy, they cause devastation, they cause grief, they cause lamentation. Uh, swords are things that often tear down and utilize them properly to cause quite a bit of damage. And, and Paul takes this idea then and then attaches to it the word of God. And, and, and what's interesting there is that if, if you look at Genesis and go all the way to Revelation what you'll see is that the word of God is a very different kind of weapon. Hebrew says it's sharper than any two-edged sword, but it's a different kind of weapon. It's not a weapon that often tears down, but it's a weapon that builds. Right? It's a weapon that speaks light into darkness at the very beginning of time. It's a weapon that creates order in the midst of chaos. It's a weapon that can bring enemies together and form families out of them. It's a weapon that draws strength out of weakness and causes dead things to live. I 
think the idea here is, yes, word of God is a reference to scripture. Word of God is a reference to what God says, but also the word of God may be a reference to the power of words itself. I think in our culture, we, we, we have that saying, right, uh, that I grew up with, this idea of sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you, or words can never hurt me. I don't think any uh, uh, Jewish theologian writing the Old Testament thought that way. And there's a, there's a very strong uh, edge in Genesis, right? This, the strong idea that words have power. The words of God have power. God speaks and things happen. Realities form. Identities are shaped. Things are constructed. Possibilities are imagined. Words are powerful. And I think we also understand this too. I think some of us can even think back 20, 30, 40 years ago to that one thing that one person said and how that shaped me and how that led me on this trajectory, whether for good or for bad. And I think what Paul's saying here is, look, look, we got to be careful with our words as well. We got to understand that the way we use our words can tear down, they can devastate, and especially we can use the word of God in that way as well. Right? We can act like the Satan in the Gospels and do the same thing where we take scripture, we take our agenda, and we push it in a certain direction, and we cause more devastation than good. And what Paul's saying is, okay, that's one way to go about it, or the other way to go about it is be filled with the Spirit. And let the Spirit lead and let the Spirit direct. And don't take your agenda and take the Word of God and drive one way, but be shaped by the agenda of the Word. And sit in that and let the Word take the lead. And when you do that, then you can speak life into situations. Then you can build up situations. Then you can uh, make prosper your families and your communities and even your church community as well. So now that we have the sword, now that we have the helmet, now that we have the shield, this is the part that I often don't look at in Ephesians because it just gets so overlooked and it's in a different paragraph. But Paul says the most important thing to do when you're all geared up is what? You got to pray. You got to pray. You got to pray in every occasion. You got to pray all sorts of prayers. You got to pray for one another. You got to pray in the spirit. You also need to pray for me and your leaders. You got to pray. Why? I think Paul realizes, rightfully so, that prayer is what makes this all work. Prayer is what gives us the perspective we need to see that the armor of God and the weapons of God are not for us to use as we please and as we wish and however we want to by our own strength, but it is all dependent on God himself. It's all dependent on how God uses that armor. Prayer is what keeps us in solidarity with one another so we don't misuse that armor. Prayer is also what gives us that energy, that life-giving word that we can speak to one another. Prayer is what keeps us faithful. Prayer is what keeps us grounded in the truth. Without prayer, none of this works. It is the life-giving, animating force that energizes the armor of God. So as we pray, I'm going to wrap up here. As we are in prayer, as we are praying in the spirit and thinking of one another, here's Paul's, words last, here's Paul's last words for us as we wrap up this series, is in prayer, wrap yourselves with the belt of truth, the truth that you are beloved and God is the generous lover. 
And as you do that, put on the breastplate of righteousness and keep close to your heart the things that compel God to act and move in the world so that you might also be compelled to move and act with God and protect your heart from self-interest. And as you're doing that, make sure you also put on your feet the readiness of the gospel that is ready to share this peace that not only have things between you and God the Father have been fixed, but also things between you and your neighbors have been fixed as well. You and enemy, all of us have been brought together into the same household of God. And as you think about this new family, this new society that has been created Take up your shield of faithfulness. Take up the shield that reminds you of Christ's faithfulness to you. And as you think of Christ's faithfulness, hold it up for one another. And when that happens, the enemy will realize, well, if I can't attack from the outside, I will attack you from the inside. So put on the helmet of salvation. Keep front and center the idea that Jesus is victor victorious. Keep front and center this idea that Jesus has overcome. And when we see those difficult situations, when we see those difficult people, filter them through the lens of victory and have that shape your imaginations. And last but not least, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And be so rooted in the word of God, be so rooted in the agenda of the word of God, that your words as well might take on God's resurrecting power. And so as you speak into the world, as you move in the world, that God might make resurrection happen in marriages thought once dead, that God might make resurrection happen in your relationships, that God might make resurrection happen in your communities and their deep-seated wounds. And when the powers and principalities come knocking at your door and they say, hey, we're here to destroy, hey, we're here to tear apart, that that word might be in you to declare to them what God has brought together here at NBC. We will not let anything tear apart. We will not let anything tear apart, not our marriages, not our families, not our communities, and certainly not this community for which God's son bled and died. Amen. So as you go out this morning, gear up. As you go out into this world this morning, remember to pray. Remember to pray in the spirit for one another. And remember, as you go out into the world this morning, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world and all the powers and principalities that come against you. Rest in that peace and rest in that victory. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you that you are the faithful one, that from the very beginning of time, you knew us, you loved us, you chose us, you adopted us, we are your beloved, and that you don't just leave us in this world to fend for ourselves, but you equip us with your holy armor, with your very own armor. So God, secure us in truth, keep close to our hearts your righteousness, Give us the readiness to share peace wherever we go. Remind us of the faithfulness that you have demonstrated to us in your son, Jesus. Guard our minds and our thoughts and everything that we see and navigate in this world by the truth of your salvation. And equip us with your very words that create, bring light, and bring life into every situation that we may be used by you, that we may reflect you everywhere we go and with every person that we interact with. And we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.